CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Welcome to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, Megan Hines will be giving us an update on her power hockey work. So what's new and exciting in the world of power hockey? Yeah, it's been an eventful spring. We just got back uh, from Belgium. Uh, we had Team Canada competing in the Flanders Cup, uh, which is one of the many tournaments that uh, you know different nations have in Europe. Um, and so we were competing against different club teams, some national teams. So yeah, it was a really great experience to continue the development of our players. Uh, we ended up comp- uh, competing and finishing 8th out of 10th, which is definitely progress for our team. I know it seems low in standings, but uh, given that our team you know, doesn't compete by the international rules regularly, and um, you know, so really competition is the only opportunity for us to continue that development and outside of uh, you know, weekly trainings and stuff, uh, you know, we were really proud of the outcome and having games that were you know, tighter scores and, uh, and that kind of thing. So that's kind of on um, kind of what's been happening, preparing for that, and then we have a couple, a few exciting initiatives coming up. We have a we have a, um, a summit that will be happening in the fall um, again, and then we also have um, a couple leagues that will be up and running. So we have our Durham League that just started and is uh, in some of the final weeks of their spring, uh, you know, cohort. So yeah, it's definitely been eventful, and uh, will continue to be so. So I'm curious, uh, you say local players don't play by international rules very often. What are the primary differences for uh, some of the players going over and doing power hockey on an international stage? Yeah, for sure. So there are definitely similarities between the sport. Like at the end of the day, both are hockey. Um, but, you know, our, inter- our North American rules play more so, if you think of like NHL-style ice hockey rules, that's more so what, what our rules are based off of. So we play on a gym floor, but, you know, all the rules are basically like you see in the NHL 
with a, you know some modifications, things like we don't have icing, um, but and but we do have penalties for like dangerous driving, for instance. Um, so that's kind of North American. Whereas international rules, um, you know, they uh, have no offside rules. Um, the nets are about a foot tall uh, and quite wide. Um, also, the ball can't be raised more than about a foot off the ground. So, you know, we don't have high balls in the international game. Uh, and one of the biggest differences as well is that all, um, you know, the international or the majority of international players uh, play in sport chairs, uh, which is quite different than an everyday chair. Uh, you know, speed is one factor, but also, you know, the turning ability of the sport chairs. Uh, so our players, some have, uh, you know, bought sport chairs following the World Cup last summer. Uh, so they've been able to practice with them. But given it is quite a big expense, um, you know, it's definitely a tough thing for every player to do. So we have to have players, you know, sit in, re- in rental chairs and, you know, really kind of do that quick learning curve when they get to competition and relearn how to kind of use a sport chair and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, like I said, at the end of the day, they're both hockey, but there's some things that, you know, players have to get used to, which is why, you know, competing in these competitions will just continue to enhance our development. And, uh, you know, no doubt that uh, we'll definitely get up to the kind of caliber and performance of international teams once we kind of, um, you know, get more experience under our belts. So I'm curious, uh, with a sport chair, how do you go about uh, practicing power hockey? I mean, you got to figure there's a certain degree of control required, and that's mentioned stick maintaining. So uh, how do you keep that kind of balance? Yeah, so the sport chairs, you know, they definitely provide a really great enhancement to the game. Uh, they're more of what we call a mid-wheel chair uh, in, in most cases. So, you know, there are six wheels uh, and then the, the, the bigger wheel that you would see on a car chair is right in the middle. So it's that really creates that kind of turning on a dime ability type thing. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, there's not much you can do to really prepare using a sport chair when you're not in the sport chair. Um, but, you know, when people, when we get to competitions and we get those rental chairs for our players, you know, players are just, you know, living and breathing in the, in the sport chairs and trying to, you know, relearn how to use them in a sense. And, because at the end of the day, they are power shares, so it's not, um, you know, once they've used them a few times, it's pretty easy to kind of, like, get that, you know, muscle memory and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, it does take a little bit to kind of get that adjustment, for sure. So I'd imagine that uh, regardless of the rules or uh, even the chair to some degree, there's a lot of speed and a lot of uh, athletic ability going into uh, international games. Oh, for sure, yeah. Speed is a big factor. Um, you know, the chairs go 15 kilometers an hour, um, and there's, it's a very fast-paced game, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, there's call, one of the biggest things we've seen and that our team is continuing to work on is, you know, passing and, you know, being a truly, you know, working together team and thinking one step ahead. And so, um, you know, as a defensive player for myself, um, it's about kind of making that block, but thinking, you know, two or three steps ahead in terms of, not just sitting there, but saying, okay, we're going to go next. So there's a lot of kind of on-the-go thinking and trying to figure out, you know, where's the play going to go next? How can you create those openings for your players? How can you make those openings for yourself? All that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's definitely an, an intense game for sure that requires a lot of athletic ability and strategic thinking and everything like that. So 
What are the next steps in the training for the players to get ready for the next round? Yeah, so I think it's continuing kind of our in-person training. Um, it's tough because Canada is a really large geography, and so we have players from, you know, all across the country that compete in Team Canada, um, you know, mostly with Ontario and Alberta. But, you know, we're continuing to try and invite players from other provinces who are interested as different programs get up and running. Um, and so in-person trainings, uh, we try and do them as, as much as we can, recognizing, though, that, you know, it's hard for someone from Alberta to fly out for the weekend kind of thing. And so for us as Power Hockey Canada, we're really trying to figure out how we can find those grant opportunities to, um, you know, support, you know, the funding aspect of training, you know, doing a training camp where we can bring players from across the country to a central point, wherever that may be, um, and help players with the in-person training. But on top of that, we've been doing a lot of virtual practices as well. You know, we have a lot of team, um, you know, video footage right now of ourselves and of other teams. And so looking at that, like I said, the strategic part of the game is a huge part. And so we're looking over video footage and having, you know, providing ways for players to, you know, practice on their own time, different drills, that kind of thing. So, yeah, you know, we, we have to get creative, and, you know, given it's the pure, you know, vast size of Canada uh, and players being dispersed across um, different provinces. But, uh, you know, something that we're working on and hopefully with increased awareness of power hockey and more support, you know, financially as well to help us get more of those training camps up and running, we can, you know, accelerate the development of our players. I thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. For sure. Thank you so much. Of course. In this segment of our show, Lara Bloom will be telling us a little bit about EDS. So, can you tell me a little bit about the Society? Yeah, absolutely. So, the Ellis Danlos Society is a global organization that um, is here to support those impacted by the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and hypermobility spectrum disorders and all the comorbidities that could come with those diagnoses. We also offer a lot of support to health professionals um, who are working with uh, the community. So how do you reach out to those affected by the syndromes? I think it's different each time. So we have a very large social media presence and often I think that that's the kind of almost a shop window into what you're doing because there's so many different uh, people on social media, different ages, on different platforms and we try and, on, and have activity on all of them. We have yet to really have an impact on TikTok but other, th um, other than that we're pretty active on all of them. Um, we also have... Um, a large database of people that have interacted with us in the past that stay involved but really it's about building a reputation and we've been you know very lucky to have built a good reputation on doing things that have been needed to to be done for many many years there was a, a good deal of neglect of probably two decades worth of neglect in these conditions and when we launched it officially in 2016 our, our aim was to care for the community, uh, CARE being an acronym for CARE, Access, Research and Education. And that's really primarily what we're doing and we try and reach as many people as we can from all over the world. So what are the most common impacts of the syndromes? Well, it, everyone is on a vast spectrum. Um, I think it's important to remember as well there's 14 different types of EDS and different types of HSD. 
and each type can affect people differently. So there could be people whose lives are very severely impacted and they're unable to work. Um, they could be using wheelchairs. Um, and there's other people that are, you know, out there living a very active, good quality of life. And both experiences are valid and and very real for the person experiencing them. So we try and, and be here for, for everyone on the spectrum. Um, but I think that the one thing that unites all of the types is is there being joint hypermobility and skin involvement. We also see a lot of chronic pain. I think with the hypermobile type and HSD, you see a lot of comorbidities that really can affect all the different body systems, autonomic, GI, uh, breathing, or all, all sorts. And, and so, you know, having the diagnosis doesn't mean you're going to have all the comorbidities, um, but it's, you know, important that we are able to educate of what people could experience potentially and also the condition can be quite sporadic so what is your experience one year may not be the same the next. So I'm curious when you mention education and what a range the condition really can be do you work through the education component to clear up any myths or stereotypes concerning EDS? When you say education do you mean school systems and educational frameworks and things like that? Just in general, raising awareness of uh, the conditions themselves, uh, just letting people know what it is versus what it might not be. Sure, I mean, absolutely. That's one of our primary um, focuses in our mission. You know, one example is recently when SIA came out with having EDS as a diagnosis, it was all the headlines said it was a neurological condition and we were very quick to put a statement out there and a lot of them retracted that statement because it was very, very confusing uh, for people and it was misinformation. And so I think with more and more famous people being diagnosed with the condition, it can be a blessing and a curse in terms of awareness and education because you have a lot of people talking about it, which is fabulous, but often it's not the correct information. So wherever possible, we correct misinformation and we work very, very hard to put the correct information out there. And we're very proud to facilitate the work of the International Consortium, which is comprised of health professionals from all over the world that come together to publish the most up-to-date diagnosis diagnostic criteria, um, management guidelines, diagnostic pathways, and, and any publication that, that is relevant um, to, at, at the time. So we are constantly trying to educate and re-educate, as is often the need. So in your time with the Society, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? I think the most exciting moment, and it's really changed the trajectory of the condition, was when we received a very large donation in the millions to be able to set up the Hedge um, Research Project, which stands for Hypermobile um, Ehlers-Danlos Genetic Evaluation. And that study is looking at whole genome sequencing a thousand people, which has never been done in the world before to that scale, to try and find what the genetic causation is behind hypermobile EDS. And that's really laid the foundations for other institutes and labs to start doing similar testing and studies. And it's also leading to some really exciting discoveries in proteomics and epigenetics and and really, for me, Hedges has laid the foundation stone for so many years of research and discovery ahead, and 
we're very, very proud to have started that. And I think that there's going to be a lot of discovery and, and exciting things to announce in the next few years because of that. So if you could send any message to the community about why we need to keep pushing forward in research and taking the next steps, what would you say? I would say that research is really the most important thing to progress and further the understanding in these conditions and to give us even the slightest glimmer of hope for therapeutics and maybe even one day a cure. It's not until we truly understand what makes up these conditions, how prevalent they are, start to create natural history studies, build up our global registry, be able to fund researchers from all over the world, which costs millions and millions and millions of dollars, that we're truly going to move the needle and start to have progression in these conditions. It's taken a long, long time to get here. We are funding things that were never funded before. There has never been this amount of research funding out there for um, professionals, academics and researchers looking into these conditions. So it's time to have hope and optimism. It's also a time to have patience because these things do take time. I'd thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. You Windsor Campus Police remind you to always be aware of building safety and security to help prevent theft and break-ins. Always keep track of your belongings and never leave them unattended, even for a minute. You should report suspicious behavior immediately to Campus Police at 519-253-3000, extension 1234. Examples include a stranger going from office to office, a person loitering for a long period of time, or somebody waiting outside of offices near closing time. Always stay aware of building safety and security on campus. U Windsor Campus Police is here to help you. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, we got an update on Megan Hines' power hockey work, and we heard from Lara Bloom about EDS. In this segment of our show, Naomi Mitted will be telling us a little bit about sleep disorders. So tell me a little bit about your work with sleep disorders. Um, well, I first found out about them um, when my daughter was 12, which was five years ago. Um, I knew since she was, probably since she was born, but I didn't really notice it until she was starting preschool that it was really hard um, many mornings to get her up, and I didn't even think it could be a sleep disorder, and I never even, you know, at that time I don't think much was known about circadian uh, sleep disorders. Um, so I, it, it just took me a long time to figure out what was going on. And it was, so she was often going to school on very little sleep. And 
um, I would get no, you know notifications at our school because uh, she was often tardy or absent because I would sometimes just let her sleep. I knew she needed to sleep. Um, of course, that wasn't their fault, but um, it just became very stressful for for everyone. <laughs> so, uh, in that sense. Uh... How did you finally come to the conclusion that something was really wrong here, as opposed to just the usual childhood, oh, I want to sleep more sort of thing? Um, it got, it started to affect her mental health, because um, once she started middle school, and I think she was really trying to fit in, um, so she, even if she had only slept for two hours, she would really push herself to go, and it, it just affected, you know, I mean, physical health, which I didn't realize at the time so much, but um, when it, in it when it impacted her mental health so severely, I just, at that point, was like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to, to make sure she's going to feel okay. And uh, if that meant homeschooling and letting her follow her body clock for sleep, and I was going to make that happen. And that's what we've been doing for the past five years. And she's 17 now, so... So, what are some of the supports that have proven especially helpful in uh, dealing with her condition? Um, well, I, uh, I found out about a nonprofit called Circadian Sleep Disorders Network, um, and that was around the time that... Um, my daughter started homeschooling, and I was just reading everything I could about circadian sleep disorders, and especially, um, I've been really focused on sighted non-24, because non-24 can happen uh, with blind people as well, and for sighted people, it's just not as common, or um, if you bring it up to a specialist, sometimes they won't know about it or they just they think it's only for happens in the blind population um so connecting with that nonprofit has was very helpful and uh over some time i actually um became a board member well this past january i became a board member and that has really helped as far as being able to do more advocacy work um but yeah, there's a lot of information on our web on the website, um, and it helped me also connect with other people who understand. Um, and I should also mention it helped me realize that I uh, I have not been diagnosed though, but my daughter has. But I likely have delayed sleep phase disorder, which I mean everything's called a disorder, but it's I don't know. It's more like just a difference or a variant. I don't know different words I guess could be used um so, so my body clock is like more awake at night time and I it's pretty hard for me to go to, to fall asleep before 2 or 3 a.m and it's just been that way since I would say puberty or younger um I remember as a kid just yeah watching like Saturday Night Live when John Belushi was still on <laughs> that was like 1978 I so, do you have any advice for anyone out there who might be asking the question of, uh, is this what is affecting me, and is there anything I can do about it? Um, yes. So, 
it's a little bit difficult as far as um, so the thing that makes it so difficult to get an accurate diagnosis for it is that um, okay so what my daughter went through and things are changing things are changing for diagnosis but what my daughter went through was she had to wear an actigraphy device on her wrist for two weeks while she was um, well pretty much 24 hours a day uh, well in her case 25 hours a day <laughs> sorry it's her, her days are basically 25 hours or longer um, so she had to wear the activ actigraphy device and that would um, inf you know that information would go to the sleep doctor and uh, without any disruptions so no work no school so if somebody is working or trying to you know go follow a regular school schedule that's gonna be difficult to do like if you want to get an accurate reading of to see if you have gone 24 like you would just really need to not do anything for two weeks or longer and sleep when your body is saying it's tired. Um, there are more, there's a lot of research going on into, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there is some research going into this. Um, there are some other ways of testing, like um, with your melatonin levels. Um, also, so there are different ways to do that with saliva. And also, um, there's a um, professor. Professor Jackie Lane, she's working on like a, a blood test, I believe. Um, so in that way, with, you know, being able to look at genetic markers, uh, people would, would be able to do a, you know, saliva test maybe or a blood test and then you could, they could find out, oh, okay, you have these markers. So you, yes, that shows that you have uh, this circadian sleep disorder. Um, so that's still in the beginning stages. It's also insurance can make things really tricky as well um, as far as coverage for certain things. Um, so that's gonna that can be make things difficult as well. Right. Thank you for taking the time out to do this. But if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay. Sure. To end off today's show, folks. I'm going to play one more of those interviews from the recent ICHA Fishing Derby. I'll have another one for you next week. Hope you enjoy this story of a young volunteer devoting her time to being there for members of the disability community. This is Cam Wells here with... Krissa. And she's going to be telling us a little bit about helping out with the derby here today. So what brings you out to this event? Um, I always have a good time the years before. It's a beautiful day and it's great to see everyone having a good time. So, uh, why is it you come to support individuals yeah, with disabilities? been any high point or success that you've seen in the years you've been doing this? I love seeing when people catch the biggest fish and they get so excited and I love the music, the food, the beautiful weather, everyone's in a good mood so it's all a high point. So do you see yourself coming back and uh, continuing to be a part of this event? 
Yes, I do. This is my fourth year doing it, and I look forward to it every year. I mark it down in my calendar, so definitely coming back. Thank you very much. I'm honestly amazed, folks, when it comes to sleep disorders and misunderstandings that can be out there. Oh, you're just tired. Oh, you should get some more sleep. The fact is, like with any condition, it's not something a person necessarily has a choice in. There may be steps they can take to better manage their condition. The underlying fact is it is simply not within their control, at least not entirely. A person with a disability will always work to reach their best balance. They will always try to find what works for them. That does not mean that they can necessarily flip it on and off like a light switch. So I've always said, disability is not a hat. It's not something we take off at night when it gets uncomfortable or out of the public eye. It's not a means by which to garner sympathy. It is a means by which we better understand our lives and ourselves. It is one facet of human nature. It is not the totality of any one person's existence. We stand by people. Give them the right understanding, the right tools, the right moments. We can expect great things of them because they will know that they are capable of achieving. We build up someone with a disability and above all keep an open mind. We help them to understand that they don't have to be at odds with the world. They don't have to feel a sense of isolation, no matter the condition. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal, so get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.